Hello, can you hear me? I like to sit in the back. I feel safer back there. It's scary in the front. Um, open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Tremendous story right here. And there's a lot of things to say and... Uh, I don't have a lot of time to say them, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I have these problems with uh, going over time everywhere I go. So, um, <clears throat> I guess real quickly, uh, for those of you that weren't here last last night, my name is Micah Tuttle, and my wife is right here, Amy, and we're with our youngest little girl, Elia. She's going to be three years old here this month, and we have six kids in all. We're just kind of getting started. And the Lord's really, really blessed us with a neat family. We've been in Peru for 16 years, and uh, the Lord's really blessed us there in, in a lot of different ways. And uh, we have a boat, and we go from village to village, visiting different uh, villages and preaching the gospel, trying to make disciples and planting churches. And, uh, and we've been able to start a few Bible institutes also, or be a part of starting a couple Bible institutes. And um, we would ask that you would pray for the work there in Peru, especially in our absence, uh, but it's, it's good for us to be gone. Uh, the believers there are taking up the work and going ahead with it, and, and uh, the news that they give us is everything is, is going really, really well. So, we praise the Lord for that. Um, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses to start. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it, hap- now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragement that we find there. And the challenges also. We pray that You would challenge us. As we think about some of these things, we put our lives into Your hands, asking that that You would bless us, that You would use us in extraordinary ways. Oh God, Your work in many, many places is, is broken down, languishing, so much to do. And so few men and women that are willing to stand up and go about the rebuilding process that's necessary in many places. We ask that you would begin to do a a real work of revival, a biblical revival, returning to your word. Not a fabricated and and false revival, but something really that you do from beginning to end. Thank you for the story of Nehemiah. Great lessons that we see here. Pray that you would encourage us with this passage this morning. Help me to say the words that you want me to say. Put this time into your hands. And the rest of the day and the evening also. 
praying that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. In, uh, in Peru, in Tarapoto, in the city where we live, um, the Lord blessed us with a, a small property and a building there where we started a, a Bible institute. And um, When we first got the property, one of the first things that we needed to do was to dig a septic tank uh, in order to, to live there and be able to, to use the facilities and toilets and uh, water and everything like that. So we dug this septic tank and it was about uh, six meters in diameter and uh, seven meters deep, 21 feet deep. And as we dug this by hand, uh, every day it took us about maybe 10 days to dig it, myself and my two older boys and a couple of the brothers with us. But we would uh, set out to dig and Brother Eber, that, uh, he would come every morning and he would come into the door and, uh, with his pick and his shovel and he would yell at the top of his lungs, Manos a la obra! Manos a la obra! Hands to the work! Hands to the work! And we would just go in there with picks and we'd be digging and dirt would be flying everywhere. And we were sweating and we were smelly and dirty. But we just got a little deeper and deeper and deeper every day. We'd have lunch. And then after lunch break, we'd go back and, and ever would yell, Manus a la obra! Hands to the work! Hands to the work! And everybody, we'd go in there and pretty soon we got to the point where we'd have this, this pole up on top and, and this pulley system where we would lower the person down into the pit and then that person at the pit, in the bottom of the pit would be, or maybe two or three down there, would be filling up the bucket and then somebody at the top would be pulling up on the rope this heavy bucket full of, of dirt and then throwing the dirt down and letting it back down again. But again, letting the person down into the pit. This is a great illustration of missions. One man letting another man down into a septic tank. And the man going down, he's going to get into some dirty stuff down there. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be difficult. He's going to sweat. He's going to be smelly. It's going to be hard. And he goes down hanging on to that rope. And then he's working with the shovel and the pick. But you know, the guy at the top of the well or the top of the septic tank... He's got to let him down with that rope and then be pulling up some of the dirty stuff and throwing it out, letting him down, letting it back down again. But either way, whether you're the guy going down or you're the guy letting him down at the top of the septic tank, either way, both guys end up with scars on their hands. Where are the scars on your hands? Are you involved in the Lord's work in different places? Whether it's here, Africa, Europe, South America, China, Middle East. Show me your hands. Are there scars on your hands? The book of Nehemiah, and really I, I'm, I'm using this verse here in chapter 2, verse 18. The last couple of words. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. In Spanish, it says, and they said to one another, Manus a la obra. Hands to the work. Hands to the work. This is going to be my main point this morning. Are we in? No, no. We're in the afternoon now. Yeah. So this afternoon. Hands to the work. What are we doing? Look at there's so much work to be done. Forget around the, around the world this is supposed to be a missions conference. Let's just think about the work that needs to be done here. In the South Florida area, I've never even been here before, but it looks to me like there's a lot of work to do. 
Everywhere in the world, a lot of work to do. Let me give you some introduction and background real quick to the book of, uh, of Nehemiah. And, and this is really helpful to me when somebody explained all of this. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm b- battling a cough here. So I might cough into my microphone several times and uh, offend some of you. I, I kind of have the gift of offending people. I'm sorry, I don't have a tie. I'm, uh, I'm, just, I'm from the jungle, so I can just blame it on that. Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria in the years 722 before Christ. 722 years before Christ. Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon about 136 years later, 586 B.C. Um, 50,000 Jews went back or returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel and Ezra to rebuild the temple first. That's the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah used to be, in, in the Jewish tradition, just one book. Got divided into two books, a little bit easier to understand. Ezra's going for it with the temple. And Nehemiah, he goes on later to go for it on the rebuilding of the wall. This book records what happens about 11 years after what Ezra did, rebuilding the temple. Um, okay, the Old Testament. This is very, very helpful to understand. And many, many of you are are theologians and scholars, and so you already know this, you can sleep at this moment. This is for people that that maybe didn't know this. The Old Testament is basically put together like this. You've got 17 historical books to start out the Old Testament. Then you've got five poetry books in the middle, uh, or wisdom literature. And then you've got 17 prophets to end the Old Testament. So it's 17, 5, 17. Now, all these 17 prophets at the end, they fit back into the historical story. Really, the Old Testament, you could say, ends with 2 Chronicles, the last book of these first 17 historical books. Then again, you've got the wisdom literature and then these 17 prophets. Now, the 17 and 17 at two ends, at the book ends there, they can be actually divided into 5, 9, and 3. Five major books, or the Pentateuch, the law, that's the first five books of the Bible. Then you've got nine historical books that tell the story of Israel before the exile, before they were taken into exile. Those are nine historical books about uh, Israel before they were taken into exile. And then you've got uh, three historical books that talk about what happened after the exile. That is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, if you look at the 17 historical books over there, at the the end of the Old Old Testament, that's also divided into 5, 9, and 3. You've got five major prophets, and then you've got nine minor prophets that prophesied before the exile or captivity into Babylon, and then you've got three minor prophets to end at the end. That's Haggai, Zephaniah, and Malachi. Those guys were prophets that prophesied at the end. After the exile was over. And so Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they were contemporary prophets while, e, uh, while Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, a little bit later, are going for it were where the Lord had placed them. So you can kind of, that helps to figure out how all these prophets at the end, where they fit back into the historical side of things. Okay, that was all a little bit of background to get us on, on, this, on the same page so we're understanding what's happening. Now, they come back, or Nehemiah, and we're going to see later at the end of the chapter, he was cupbearer to the king. And here, his brother and another couple of guys, they come along and they tell him, or they give him a report about how the remnant there in the province had survived the exile and they were in great trouble. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. This is a great picture 
of our world today. Look at the world and the condition in which it is. Look at the issues of the day. The homosexual agenda. Abortion. The, the blood of millions of babies runs like a river across this nation. Racism. The whole political scene. All the gangs, drug abuse, alcoholism, broken families, divorce, pornography everywhere you turn. I think on the way to church, on the way to the building here, the chapel, on the way, I think we went past maybe five or six X-rated adult places that you can go into. And pornography everywhere. And it's just chained. So many men are chained to this sinful lifestyle and can't escape. There is so much need. And that's just to look at the condition of this world. How much they need Christ. Look at the condition of the world. Now, the condition of the evangelical church by and large. It's a big joke. Most places don't even teach the Bible anymore. What is going on? The walls of Jerusalem are burned and broken down everywhere. Brethren assemblies. What is happening? We're dying. The walls are broken down. This is a story of one man. God raised up one man to guide other men to rebuild the Lord's work that had broken down. Oh, I just, I pray and I pray, Lord... Raise up men, old men, young men, middle-aged men, family men, youth. Raise them up so that there might be a revival, but not fabricated, not false. Something that's back to the Bible movement. Where men and women want to rebuild what has been broken down. Nehemiah, he's distressed Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, his reaction is incredible. He sat down, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed for days. When's the last time you did that? When was the last time you fasted for days? And I, I know you probably have arguments about why fasting isn't for today. Okay. Well, when's the last time you just prayed for days? Like an all-night prayer meeting. Or the assembly called an all-night prayer meeting. Lord, the walls are broken down. Help us. We just, we just need revival. We want to just turn to You. Turn back to Your Word. Lord, raise up men that would go about rebuilding. So much need. The state of things distressed Nehemiah. But we, we don't really care. No big deal. If these things don't distress you, the condition of the world, condition of sinners, condition of families, condition of our churches condition of our assemblies, if it doesn't distress you, God won't use you in being part of the rebuilding process. He won't. Nehemiah here, it distressed him. That's the first step. Do these things distress you? Oh, that God would put into our hearts a desire and really 
a distressed desire to be part of starting something, a fresh work for the Lord. I love the assemblies. I didn't grow up in the assemblies. When I was 16, I got my driver's license. And my, my parents, I, I had a friend that went to an assembly in Portland, Oregon. And I asked my parents, can I go to that church? They play basketball all the time at youth group. And I love basketball. And so I went for the wrong reason. But I, I got there. I remember going to breaking a bread in the morning, Sunday morning. I couldn't believe it. Normal men. A plumber. An electrician. A taxi driver. PE teacher. These guys were getting up and they're sharing like good things from the scriptures. Focusing on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I just, I couldn't believe it because I came from a mega church where there's 7,000 people and everybody that was up in front was all professional and they were all paid and very polished and maybe eloquent. But man, when I went to the assembly, it was, it was incredible. These, it was, nobody was paid and it was just people were genuinely worshiping the Lord. And they might not have been as eloquent as the, as the mega church pastors, but I didn't care. This was real. Oh, and I would just love to see the assemblies flourishing. What's going on? The Lord needs to raise up a Nehemiah. Lots of Nehemiahs that see the need. And it's got to start with this. We've got to be distressed. Just sitting down and weeping and mourning for days, fasting and praying to the God of heaven. If these things don't distress you, then God won't use you. He'll use somebody else. God's going to get His done work with or without you. It's His work. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But I want to be in on what He's doing. A generation of men, men and women, that want to be useful instruments in the Master's hands. In the villages where we work, um, have about 30 villages in the jungles of Peru along the Huayaga River. It's a tributary to the Amazon. But uh, in those villages, and I, I mentioned it last night, the only things really to do for entertainment is, is fight, get drunk, and fornicate. And then when I come to their village, come and listen to the wild man, gringo preacher, and make fun of him. And so everybody comes out and listens. But there's so much need. There, there's witchcraft. The witch doctors are there. The, the churches, the assemblies. The only religious work in any of these villages is the assembly work. Bert and Colleen Elliott. Bert was Jim Elliott's brother. He went to Peru about five years before Jim ever went to Ecuador. But he went as a young man and he just went crazy. And just preaching everywhere, open air preaching, one-on-one evangelism, hut to hut, pulling people's teeth. His wife was doing all kinds of medical assistance and playing her accordion everywhere they went. And they would pray and they would sing. And it was incredible. Everybody come around. And assemblies were planted everywhere. And the Lord really blessed. Then they had to, in their older age, in the time of terrorism, also leave that part of Peru and go to the coast. And the work there... Over about 40, maybe 30 years in the absence of the missionaries and then the Peruvians, some of them took it on, but others, the older generation, began to die or move away. And the work in a lot of the villages began to disappear and began to die. And a lot of the villages, people have gone back to some of their primitive beliefs. First, when we arrived in the villages, I couldn't believe it. Everyone believes in mermaids. They're actually mermaids that live in our river, the Wajaga River. I've never seen them before, but everyone else has. And uh, there's these things called the Bufeo Colorado. Bufeo Colorado is a um, uh, freshwater dolphin that are, that's pink. And those really do exist. I've seen them. But the thing is, they believe that these turn into gringos, white 
foreigners that come into the villages and they rape and pillage and destroy and everybody's scared to death of them. I think that the devil planted this idea in the villagers' heads so that they would think when a missionary came, <gasps> Bufeo Colorado, and everybody's scared to death. When I first arrived at the villages, a lot of people hadn't seen a gringo before and they're like, I kept on hearing, Bufeo Colorado, Bufeo Colorado, Bufeo Colorado. I was like, what is that? And they said, well, you're, you're not really a person. You're a dolphin that's transformed into this uh, uh, gringo. And you're here to just rape and pillage and destroy. And all these legends that Chuyachaki is this demon that appears to you out in the, out in the woods. And uh, uh, Yakumama is this hundred meter long anaconda that, that uh, sucks you in. He raises his ugly head in the middle of the river. And if you look at him eye to eye, he sick sucks you in. And, and all kinds of legends. That everything is, I mean, the whole world view has been completely turned upside down. As the believers have disappeared in the villages, moved away, and churches have just completely disappeared. You know, in Babylon, when they took people into captivity, what they did was they tried to brainwash the people. And you see it in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's, it says that they went and they were under three years of education. The, their clothes were changed, their food was claimed, their language was changed, the literature, everything, music, the religion around them, even their names were changed. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to brainwash them. That's exactly what's happening with the younger generation today. Not only the younger generation, everyone in this, almost in this country is completely brainwashed. Through the media, movies, Hollywood, the internet, Music. Everywhere we go, we're, we got earbuds in. We're listening to this music and things that are just brainwashing everyone. Look at the need around us in the world. There is so much to be done. Are you distressed about it? If you're not distressed about it, God won't use you. First step, like Nehemiah, we need to be distressed about this situation. And then, that's the first step. And then, hands to the work. Hands to the work. Hands to the work. Where are the men and women that want to put their hands to the work? Rebuild what has been broken down and burned up. Another thing, verses 5 to 10. Look at this prayer. This book begins and ends with prayer. That's where we need to start. If we're going to see a work of God in the assemblies, missions work, it's got to start and end with prayer. Look at what he prays. Verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant with steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive to your eye. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And we have not kept the commandments and statutes and rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. So look, in the verse 5 there, He's basically, he's an adoration. He's worshiping God. He's recognizing how great God is. He keeps his, he keeps his covenant. He's steadfast in love. Um, and then he goes into basically confession. And he's confessing on behalf of the Israelite nation. And then after this in verse 8, he reminds God of his promises. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments to do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, he- of, the he- of heaven, for there I will gather them, and I will bring them to that place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. We need to confess our sins. And that maybe we've just been prideful. Maybe stuck in tradition rather than in God's Word. I don't know. I don't know. I've never been here before. I'm sorry if I'm offending everybody. Like I said, I have the gift of offense, uh, offending people. So uh, I can just leave after a couple of days and, and you never see me again. But then reminding God of His promises. And you see it throughout Scripture. Remember, God. Yes. You said that you're going to scatter the Israel amongst the peoples if they rebel. And that's what God did. But then He's saying in verse 9, But if we return to you, keeping your commandments, repenting of our sins, if we return, you've promised to bring us back together again with your strong hand and outstretched arm. Maybe the Lord would do something like that. Not that the Brethren Assemblies are the only movement in in the evangelical world across, uh, across the world. But assemblies, oh, to see this happen. Oh, that God would raise up Nehemiahs. Men and women that are distressed about the situation and then just cry out to God from beginning to end prayer. Praying, praying. I remember we have these conventions where uh, all of our 30 villages that we visit um, and all the assemblies, now they're growing and it's exciting to see what the Lord's doing. But we'll have these conventions where uh, every six months, all of the believers get together from all the villages and we'll have about 400 people there. Usually an assembly is 15 people in one village and, and maybe 20 in another, maybe 25 in another. But everybody gets together from all the villages. We pick a village and everybody comes and, and they bring their yucca spit juice and their, uh, their monkey meat and wild boar brains. And it's just this huge spiritual fiesta where we eat and Bible and pray. And I remember talking to this one guy. He came for four days to get there, rowing in his canoe. And I talked to him afterwards like, how did you do that? He, four days rowing in your canoe and you just spend the night on the, in the sand on the bank there every night and then getting back up and rowing. And he just said, you know, every, every stroke of the oar, I just said to myself, I'm going to be with the brothers. I'm going to be with the brothers. We're going to pray all night. All night prayer meetings. I'm going to be with the brothers. Bible, prayer, brothers. Oh, and he just encouraged himself with that as, as he got. And it was, it's, I almost fell over. Where's that desire? All night prayer meetings? When's the last time one of the assemblies had an all night prayer meeting? Or you just had this big convention. We're just going to pray all night. Incredible what the Lord is doing in the jungles of Peru. It's been exciting to see. But something that starts with prayer and ends with prayer. God raising up people like Nehemiah that want to rebuild what has been broken down. He prayed. Prayer. That's the real work. You know, William Carey, the father of modern missions, they call him. He was a missionary to India. He said this, I'm a shoe cobbler 
This is before he was a missionary. I'm a shoe cobbler for 12 hours a day. But my real work is prayer. He considered his real work, I mean, 12 hours a day fixing shoes, but his real work is prayer. That's the real work. Hands to the work. Hands to the work. Hands to the work. Men and women that are willing to put their hands to the work. You know, you can, another thing on prayer real quick, I heard somebody said that you can tell how popular a church is by how many people go to church on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular the preacher is by how many go on Sunday night. You can tell how popular Jesus is by how many go to prayer meeting. If you can't say amen, you should say ouch. Prayer meeting is usually the least attended meeting in all churches. Do we pray? Do we pray? I'm probably already going over. I don't know. Look at this. In verse 11, you kind of get the impression here He begins to feel called. After he prays, after he's distressed, he begins to feel called. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? Give success to your servant today. He's talking about himself. Lord, I'm your servant. Give me success. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. After being distressed about the condition of the Lord's work, all of the need, he he just can't forget it. He can't put it aside. Lord, I've been praying about this. I'm distressed about it. Really, he's been praying from December. That's the Chislev in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, Nisan. That's April. December, January, February, March, April. He's been praying, probably not fasting the entire time, but praying and fasting and mourning and crying out to God for five months. And then he prays, God, give me success with this man. I'm going to ask him something. Now he's starting to feel called. And and you see it also in verse 5 of chapter 2. He's finally talking to the king and he said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. Send me. Send me. Send me. He's starting to feel the call. I mean, a lot of people could just say, look at the condition of the church. Look at the condition of the world. All the need everywhere. And you could just say, why doesn't somebody do something? And then God says to you, why don't you do something? And you start to see that Nehemiah is getting, getting that idea. I want to do something. Send me. God, help me as I'm going to make this request to the king. He was cupbearer to the king. Those are the last words of chapter 1. He was cupbearer to the king. You know, God always calls people who are doing something. Moses, he was shepherding sheep. Gideon, he was threshing wheat. Peter, 
He was fishing. And you could go through all kinds of different people as you look at God as He called people. He calls people that are doing something. Don't just sit there. Do something. And then, He was cupbearer to the king. Listen, this was a posh job. Okay, the function of a cupbearer is the king doesn't want to die by somebody trying to assassinate him by putting a little poison in the, in the wine and so, or, or in the food. And so the cupbearer, he's got to taste the wine first. If he doesn't fall over dead after about 30 seconds, it's okay. Gives him the, gives him the, the wine. Now, as long as there's no poison there, this is a great job. This is a really great job. You're just like a wine tester. And also, I'm sure, being in the king's presence, you've got to be dressed nicely, much nicer than I am this afternoon. Uh, uh, this is palace life. I'm sure he's eating the best food. He, he's buddies with the king. Maybe he gets a, a salary with this. I don't know. But uh, this is a, a comfortable job. There were a thousand reasons to not go back to burn down Jerusalem. This is a comfortable job. Why go back there? I'll just kind of continue in my job a few more years, you know, letting that 401k grow a little bit more. Pretty soon I'll be able to retire. Spend the next 25 years of my life golfing and collecting seashells. That's a wasted life. I mean, older men, retire from, from your secular work and then kick it into high gear and go for it in the Lord's work. Rebuilding the walls that have fallen down. You're like a self-supporting missionary or full-time worker. Training the younger men. Passing on the baton. Nehemiah, he was cupbearer to the king. That's a high position. Good clothes, comfortable, air conditioning. There were a thousand reasons to not do this. He could have retired. But he said, no. I refuse to waste this opportunity. God's put this desire in my heart to serve Him. Thomas Hale, he said this, the biggest barrier to Christian work is the I that refuses to die. The I that refuses to give. The I that refuses to go. Risk is right. John Piper writes a book called Risk is Right. And you see it all through the Bible in almost every single story. In this story, Nehemiah took a huge risk. He's going to come and ask the king something. And the king, he could take his head. He takes a risk. And he goes before the king... And he actually, in chapter, we could just keep on going. I got all kinds of stuff to say. I've got notes in all my margins here, all the way through the book. Incredible story about how the Lord raised up one man, one man, to encourage other men in the Lord's work, and they rebuilt what was broken down. But it was risky. He had to face all kinds of opposition, all kinds of difficulties and problems, criticism. That's the Lord's work. But the Lord raised up a man who was willing to take those risks. And the Lord blessed him. Hands to the work! Hands to the work! Hands to the work! Where are the men and women that are willing to put their hands 
to the work. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, the encouragement that we find here, and also the challenge that we find everywhere. Oh God, society is broken. Churches are broken. Great work of past generations is broken and burned down in many places. Help us to be distressed about it. Give us an eternal perspective. Help us to be willing to take risks for You, our great God, and Your great cause. Look around and think to ourselves, why doesn't somebody do something? And then You say to us, why don't You do something? Lord, please, raise up new generation of young men that want to receive the baton from the older generation. Rebuild in the places that the work has been broken down. Help us to put our hands to the work. And as we do this, we pray that You would help us and bless us. Because outside of You, we can do nothing. Put our lives into Your hands. Asking that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would begin to do a great work. In Jesus' name, amen.